Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Podcow. Thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Sash, and I'm here with my friend and fellow dairy farmer, Andrew Campbell. How's it going in Ontario these days, Andrew? It's going great, Sarah. Um, it, it is, we're dry in the very kind of southern part of the province, um, which throughout like the spring season has been sensational because we can get so much done and not worry about the weather, what the weather's doing. But we've got like about one more day of work and then I'm immediately going to want it to rain if I can put that uh, out there, that, that now I'm ready. I wasn't ready yesterday. Tomorrow, <laughs> I'll be ready. How are things in BC, Sarah? Same boat here. We got a nice stretch of 10 days of sunshine, which is awesome for getting everything done and completely exhausting. And we did get that, what my husband's calling a million dollar rain. Uh, Right after everybody kind of got the main bulk of their crops in, we got a big dump of rain and then crazy dry again. So everybody is out irrigating their um, corn planting at this point trying to get it to come up and we're back in the dry stuff uh, with the climate anxiety being fueled a little bit um but getting through it yeah well that's i i didn't realize you were irrigating corn is that what you oh, do yeah oh yeah last that couple of like years such a big job it is but uh yeah you need to do it to get it going in the in the springtime when we have this super dry weather so that's what's See, happening yeah we are not set up. we also apparently need to do that um, because it has not rained very much for a month. Um, so far, my strategy is to drive by slowly in the pickup truck and hope yes. it rains. It has yes. not worked yet for growing corn, but I think we'll get there. You just got to get your pool clean, and then it will definitely rain. <laughs> then it'll definitely. Well, you know what? And, and the whole th- the thing is, and we're actually, we are the uh, butt of most jokes in our community in that when we cut hay, it rains. And so I've had many neighbors text me saying, can you please cut hay? And I said, yes, I did. And I put my dad in it. Like, we've tried everything. It still hasn't done it, but it is what it is. So. No shortage of weather frustration being a dairy no, farmer. I don't, no, I don't think there's, there's a day we ever come on here and say it's just perfect. So, Well, there must have been, must have been one after that million-dollar rain two days later. You must have been happy. I was happy one day, too, but yeah, it, is, it is how it goes. So, um, And certainly one of the things that also is a big topic of conversation, Sarah, uh, within the dairy industry, we talked about it previously was this code of practice for the care and handling of dairy cattle. Um, We talked about kind of the draft, what was in it, what should be done. Um, The review's complete, um, and the final code was published March the 30th. So we're just over here at the Canadian PodCow normalizing, talking about the code as much as we talk about the weather, um, which is an important part of dairy farming in 2023. So to find out what's coming, we decided to bring back the same guest as last year to update us. Uh, That's to say Clement Snash, who is Program Manager for ProAction and Animal Care at Dairy Farmers of Canada, will be joining us today. And by the way, if you did miss uh, the episode that was talking about the draft, uh, it is available uh, on our website, canadianpodcow.ca, or just in the podcast feed. So without further ado, let's get to it with today's episode on the Code of Practice for the Care and Handling of Dairy Cattle. Thanks for tuning in to the Canadian Podcow. In January 2019, Dairy Farmers of Canada initiated a review using the National Farm Animal Care Council's code development process. 
as I said, the process is now complete and the new code is available on the website nfacc.ca. To answer all of our questions about the new code, our guest today is Clarence Nash, Project Manager Manager at Dairy Farmers of Canada. Clem for short. Clem, thanks for joining the Canadian PodCow. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we're glad you're back to answer uh, some of our questions here because there is a lot to discuss. Uh, we, we had you on, uh, you know, before, obviously, to discuss just what some of the potential changes were some of the red flags that certainly dairy farmers needed to be aware of. Um, so, it's, so it's good to get to the heart of this and and maybe we can kind of start back up a little bit. Remind listeners, what is this code of practice for care and handling of dairy cattle and why was it updated? Sure. So, I mean, the code of practice is, is essentially made up of industry-supported list of requirements and recommended best practices. Um, And those kind of ensure that dairy farming practices in Canada remain scientifically informed, practical, but also relevant to societal expectations. Um, And that, that we all kind of work together to figure out what those requirements are. Most livestock sectors in Canada now have one, uh, even fish industries, for example. And the expectation is that they're updated every 10 years. Our dairy code was last published in 2009, so we were definitely due for a revision. So can you tell us more about the process that led to the publication of the new code? I mean, I know it took four years, which is quite a long time. Who developed the new code and what are the steps they took to get there? Yeah, great question. I mean, as we all know, the last few years have been eventful for all of us. Uh, and, and all of the things that followed. Um, so the the code, the provision process, and even a new code is managed by the National Farm Animal Care Council, NFAC. Uh, and the first step of any either new code or code revision is for a scientific committee to do a literature review. So we had dairy scientists from across the country come together to really review the literature around animal care for dairy cows and kind of figure out what the science says, uh, because that is the basis. That is step one. It has to be science-based. Um, and following that, they just generate a report that is then shared with the code committee. Now, the code committee is made up of pretty much every stakeholder we can get on there. Um, Of course, farmers are well represented. We've got veterinarians, we've got transporters, um, we've got like humane animal groups that aren't necessarily PETA, but are really focused on animal welfare. So uh, Humane Canada was there. Um, We've got kind of DFC staff that are represented. It's just like everyone's around the table and it is a consensus-based model. So they have to come to a consensus on what new requirements look like. Uh, so they get together and uh, normally those meetings are supposed to be in person, which generally leads to kind of more um, fruitful discussions. But because of COVID, everything had to be virtual, which definitely slowed the process down. On top of that, some of the issues that were being discussed um, at this code revision were quite complex and quite Im- potentially quite impactful for farmers. And so it really took a long time for them to work through that and ensure that the final code um, would meet everyone's expectations as best uh, as, it, as it could. Well, impactful, I think, is a really important word there, Clem, in terms of obviously all of this. I mean, I mean having gone through it, both, um, you know, kind of pre-consultation and post, you know, there, there's a lot of things that obviously dairy farmers are doing on a regular basis already that didn't change. But there is still impact 
in this change. Um, do you want to kind of bring to light, um, you know, some of the biggest, most impactful changes that you feel were made compared to the 2009 version? Yeah, there, there's there's a few things that I'd like to raise, I think. Um, some of these I, I, I'm sure we'll discuss a little later in this podcast. But one of the biggest kind of novelties of this code, um, and it's the first code to do this, is that we have a 12-month implementation period, which means that um, as of publication date, which was March 31st, 2023, farmers have 12 months to implement those requirements that don't already have like another date listed in the requirement, which means the live date is technically April 1st, 2024. That's new. Um, and that is to take into account that some of the changes um, that are required of farmers for these recommendations uh, could take a little bit of time to do. And so the code committee was very sensitive to that. Um, in terms of the requirements themselves, um, a lot of it, like you said, uh, Andrew, has already is already covered by ProAction or partially covered by ProAction. Um, so farmers are already doing a lot of it. The, the the kind of new ones that have generated quite a few questions and have has re have received quite a bit of attention are those generally around calf and cow housing. So, uh, for calf housing, uh, the the requirement as of April first, twenty twenty four, is that indoor calves can't be tethered, and that outdoor calves. Um, can be, but need uh, outside access to the hutch. So they need to have like access to a space outside of the hutch um, and need to have physical contact with other calves. So that could um, be impactful for, for some farms. Uh, and then on top of that, by April 2031, the expectation is that calf housing will be in pairs or groups. Um, and so there's kind of a, you can see the, all the details in the code. So I recommend everyone go actually read the detailed code to get all the details. Um, it's available, like Andrew said, on the website. Uh, but, but it means that at a certain age, and I think it's between two to four weeks, um, farmers have to kind of develop a plan to prepare and group housing calves. And based on the science, um, it's pretty clear that that does kind of promote uh, social behavior, longevity, um, growth in, in caps. So it's a really positive change, but you have quite a few years before you have to do that. A lot of farms are already doing it and doing it well. There have been questions about cross-stacking and how to manage that. So um, DFC and provinces are aware of those concerns and we're working on, on, on ways to help support farmers through that with their farm teams. Um, but those are kind of the requirements that have a lot of people talking in terms of calves. And then for cows, uh, so there, there are a few requirements that have um, garnered quite a bit of attention in terms of tie stall housing. Um, newly built tie stall barns have to allow cows daily access to untethered freedom of movement. So on kind of pasture or dirt lot or even in, in a pen inside. And then as of 2027, all tie stall farms have to allow some form of kind of untethered time freedom of movement between calvings. So that means there are some farms, most farms are already doing this to be, to be honest, but there are some farms that leave cows tied from weaning all the way to when they're no longer on the farm a few years later. And, and the expectation is that you that cows need to have access to some un untethered time throughout the year. That could be their dry period, for example. A lot of farms do that. It could be pasture access in the summer or dry lot access in the summer. Some period of time that is meaningful for cows uh, to be untied. 
In terms of freestalls, uh, the questions relatively surround themselves around stocking density. So uh, as of 2027, the stocking density requirement in stalls drops to 1.1. Currently, the production requirement is 1.2 or 120%. So that would drop to 110% in April 1st, 2027, and then to 100%, so one stall per cow. Uh, in 2031. So that obviously could have some impactful, uh, some impacts on farmers. That being said, and again, go to the code for all the details, uh, but there are exceptions there for periods where, like temporary periods where, for example, a herd is planning to expand, has built a new barn, is building up their herd. They can go over the stocking density requirements in, in situations like that. So, and a lot of requirements have those kind of disclaimers or caveats. So it's important to go read all the details. Uh, because we know that farms are, are really living, breathing businesses and, and are constantly changing and situations happen and arise and animals get sick and things happen. So it, it's really not intended to be limiting um, in that way. It's, it, the, the code is meant to work with farmers. In terms of new barn builds, we also have to think about calving. So there's been there have been a few questions about housing of calving cows. Um, new barns need to allow for cows to calve loose. Uh, it doesn't have to be individual pens. It could be like a calving pen with multiple cows, but they have to be loose. Um, and then this would apply to all barns starting in 2029. So that could also have quite uh, quite an impact on, on certain farms, depending on how they manage calving. And I know like, a lot of tie stall farms sometimes um, kind of manage calving installs. So that will have to be a transition. Um, but those are those are probably the, the most impactful changes that have the most people talking. Um, and there's been a lot of rumors circulating around those requirements. So I hope that that clears up some of that and that if there are any comments or questions, go to the code, go to your provinces after that. And then you can find us at DFC if, if they don't they don't hit the mark. <laughs> so just going back to the process a little bit, I, I mean, we when you say talking, we've been talking about this for a long time. It's been a number of years of consultation. I'm curious between the version that preceded the consultation and public comment period and the updated version that was ultimately released, um, were there differences? What, what impact did that consultation have um, on the actual finished product? Yeah, this is this is a great success story. Uh, the the comment period was super su successful, almost too successful because everyone was overwhelmed by the comments received. Um, we broke many NFAC records for comment periods um, in terms of number of comments, number of comments from farmers, number of comments from everyone. Um, like the bulk of the comments came from farmers, and then um, the, the the kind of the second highest number was uh, was consumers or um, uh, interested citizens. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it was clear that, that, that people wanted to participate in the process and share their thoughts. And, and most of that was quite constructive, which was also really great to see. Um, the impact of that on the final version is that about just under 50 requirements were either removed or refined and streamlined and simplified. So that, is a, is a huge impact. Uh, and if you were to do a, a like a, a common period version versus final version comparison, you'd be able to see how some of those pieces were streamlined and which requirements were removed. For example, I think uh, the, the draft version had that you can no longer use prods at all, period. And there were comments that came in saying, you know, sometimes they're needed in kind of urgent 
like human or animal safety situations and here's why and they were detailed and explained the 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 reasoning behind it and so now prods are permitted in certain situations um and and you know there are strict kind of guidelines on, on when and how to use prod but those are the, the the types of impacts where there was a requirement it didn't really make sense to on-farm practices farmers were heard and that was adjusted um, while still maintaining a science-based, cow-focused animal welfare approach. So it was really great. Yeah, that is a great news story when you when you do kind of go through. I mean, I mean, I know the discussion was we hope dairy farmers in the dairy industry will um, you know, take part and do these consultations, but it is a really great news story that that so many did um, you know, and make them constructive feedback um towards the towards the new code now um just going back for a second you had mentioned um you know kind of the 12 month implementation for the majority of the code other timelines stretching you know to 2027 or beyond depending on what they are and we'll get into more of those details in a minute um but I'm curious, how, how are these going to be enforced? Is this a thing that, you know, it, it, ProAction will look after it? You know, what, what can farmers kind of expect as this is rolled out? Yeah, great question. And it's not it's not super clear for everyone. And I, I appreciate um, taking the time right now to kind of go through that. So um, essentially, the, uh, the code requirements that don't have a specific date of implementation stated in the requirement itself are all live as of April 1st, 2024. Now, that does not mean that they're live in ProAction. Uh, the ProAction uh, program is based on two-year cycles. We try really our best not to change or add requirements mid-cycle. Um, and we want to make sure that we implement new requirements into ProAction thoughtfully and the right way through our committee process um, with heavy farmer involvement. So the earliest you're going to see changes to pro the ProAction modules that are based on the revised code is in September of 2025. That's like at the earliest. That's the, the start of the cycle that it would apply to. With that being said, um, as of April 1st, 2024, what, what the play is, is that there are a lot of provinces that have the code written into their provincial regulations for animal care, animal welfare. So what could happen is post-April 1st, 2024, if an inspector comes on a farm due to, to a report by someone uh, for animal care or animal hygiene or anything like that, and an inspector shows up from the province, they may use the code as the basis of the standard that is to be met, which would be the new requirements. Um, so yeah, it's not live in pro-action, but the expectation from the province at the animal welfare regulation level is that the codes are being met. Um, those requirements that are stated to be live as of April 1st, 2024. Um, so, so that's kind of where the impact could be on farms. So farmers need to be mindful of that. Generally speaking, the code is used more as like a supportive tool rather than a hammer um, in situations and scenarios like that. But it is something to be aware of for farmers. Okay, so we still got some time to adapt and prepare, but we got to get up to speed to this and uh, start thinking about it all the time on our farm in the new context if we're, if we're not up to speed on the updates and changes. Um, what we don't have time for anymore, though, is uh, chatting before the break. So Clem Nash is going to stay with us uh, to work through the major changes to the code of practice for the care and handling of dairy cattle right after this. Stay with us. As a chef, I like composting because it gives back to the earth. 
Hey Aaron, how do dairy farmers help protect the planet? On my farm, I compost manure. This helps reduce the carbon footprint of milk production. Plus, manure makes for richer soil, which can help grow crops. So it's like the circle of life. Yeah, we're working towards a more sustainable future. I'm in, are you? I'm in. That's Dairy Farming Forward. Dairy Farmers of Canada, net zero by 2050. And we're back with Clem Nash, Project Manager at Dairy Farmers of Canada. In the new code, there are requirements, but there are also recommended practices. Can you explain to us the difference between the two and if we should expect that one day the recommendations will become requirements? Because I think as farmers, you see a recommendation and you're like, well, what does this really mean? Uh, can you shed some light on that? Yeah, uh, great question. So requirements are just that requirements, like the minimum requirements that are technically mandatory um, if you're following the code. And the recommended best practices are recommendations um, that if farmers want to go above the minimum and kind of meet the optimal standard for animal care, they, they should be taking a look at those recommended best practices in addition to the requirements. That being said, there's always a possibility that farmers... Um, that are on our, our proaction committees decide to make some of the recommendations part of proaction just because they feel that farmers potentially already meeting the recommended best practices, so might as well be high achievers. Um, and, and our industry generally does really go, um, go further and lead the way in terms of best animal care practices, um, both as a dairy sector globally, but also compared to other livestock sectors, even in Canada. And so that has happened in the past. It's something to be mindful of, but it's always done um, very carefully. Now, if we do get into some of the finer details of these um, you know, requirements and recommendations, off the top, obviously, you you kind of ran down the big headlines. Um, you know, One of those that you mentioned that you know, kind of screamed out to me is the conversation around tie stall barns just because there are so many tie stall barns um you know in canada so uh, i i mean i i know you talked about this a little bit off the top but if we can get into some more details like you know is is this the beginning of the end of a tie stall is it that they can really no longer be built can can you get into that in some more details, just, just for those, especially those that, that are in tie stall barns today? Yeah, so there, there have been a lot of rumors and misprints circulated around tie stalls and the end of tie stalls. Um, this code revision does not mean tie stall barns cannot be built or, you know, are, are being retired, so to speak. Um, it, it, the code is pretty clear in stating that farms will all have to move towards providing some form of freedom of movement, whether that be daily or sometime calving to calving, um, depending on new builds versus existing facilities. Um, but existing facilities can continue. And a lot of tie stall farms are already following these requirements. So um, from that front and from the requirement side of things, uh, you know, tie stall farms are, are, are here to stay. That being said, um, um, Outside of the realm of requirements and recommended best practices and regulatory elements, um, we have seen uh, financial institutions starting to, to, to think more carefully about whether to fund new 
tie stall builds um, because we are seeing a reduction in tie stall barns in Canada in terms of numbers year to year and also internationally. Um, so that could be something farmers need to be mindful of. It, it might be difficult to get funding uh, for building new tie stall barns. And, and so it's kind of not the code or not necessarily pro-action that is, is, is pushing that movement, but more financial institutions and uh, other stakeholders. So I think you kind of answered the question already, but if we were to embark on a major renovation, let's say, does the renovation of, of an old barn meet the definition of new construction? Uh, how would you see that? Yeah, so we'll be kind of adding a, a lot more detail to this if and when um, this comes to kind of the DFC provincial side of things. Uh, but for the time being, the the code the understanding of the code is that um, an extension to an existing barn would not qualify as a new build. So if you're just like extending the roof another X number of feet, um, that would be kind of same footprint. Cows already live in that barn. You're just adding an extension to it. If you're building a barn from the ground up on a different site or next to the existing barn. And you, even if you connect it to a tunnel, if it's like ground up, new foundation, um, independent walls, all those things, then that would be considered a new build. Uh, and so the new build requirements would apply. And if we can kind of keep on the subject of housing and flip to calves, because that was, that was one that I know, you know, again, from kind of draft one, to final version, um, you know, ha had quite a few changes, um, just given just how strict some of those requirements were going to be for, you know, housing calves, particularly group housing and tethering and all that kind of thing. Um, it, is it a case of, um, you know, you think that, that a lot of farmers are going to have to change how they raise calves, given that, you know, if I, if I look at us as an example, um, you know, 12 months ago before we moved into our new barn, um, you know, they were in hutches individually for eight weeks. Um, I'm thinking that wouldn't have been allowed um, in a few years. And I know a lot of other farms are in that same situation. If you are in that system um, today or for those farms, farmers listening that have that system currently, um, hutches outside are still acceptable um, and the, the calves can still be tied to the hutch. There has to be a collar as opposed to just using the chain as a collar. Um, the, the, the impactful thing though, is that if you put fronts on your hutches where the cows can't go out of the hutch, even if it's got like a, a space for the head, um, that would need to be adjusted to have pens in front or like take that off and keep the calf tied and allow the calf to leave the hutch to allow it, um, itself to kind of adjust its own body temperature and, and, and gain kind of some outdoor time. And the hutches would have to be close enough to permit physical contact. Um, so, you know, you can have individual hutches with individual calves, but the chains need to be long enough for those calves to interact in some way without getting themselves tangled up and hurting themselves. This is because animals will be animals, uh, toddlers will be toddlers. Like we, we have to keep safety in mind for all. Uh, so it, it's doable. And, and that's the nice thing about the code is that it's generally speaking, non-prescriptive. Like they don't detail exactly how long the chain needs to be or what the stall dimensions exactly need to be or all of those things. They kind of, it's more outcome-based, cow-based and science-based. So if the outcomes are met, 
however that looks uh, for the most part within these kind of guidelines, then you're good. Um, and so farmers can kind of find their own way to do that. I've seen um, a whole lot of different ways for, for pens to be constructed around hutches. I've seen skids being used. I've seen fencing being used. Um, I've seen straw and hay bales being used. Uh, lots of options. Of course, there are also implications around biosecurity and other things that need to be uh, managed, and that's where we strongly recommend that um, the vet, the on-farm vet, and your farm team are are involved in the process to make sure that those types of um, uh, issues are covered. So, are there any differences for cow breeds? Like, if I'm a Holstein farmer or Jersey farmer, is there a difference in the code? Um, and maybe to follow that up, are all four-legged uh, bovines on the farm covered by the same code? If you have some beef animals on your farm, uh, what's the situation with that? Man, you're throwing me some hard ones. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of cow size, like dairy breeds, so if you've got like Canadians or Jerseys or or those type of smaller structure breeds, um, there are kind of disclaimers or exceptions made for pack space, for example. So those smaller breeds require less space on a pack um, and, and those details. Usually it's about 80%. I think production uses 80% of a mature Holstein is, is what the standard is for jerseys and Canadians and smaller structure cows. Um, so that's where that is taken into account. As for stall dimensions, I mean, as long as the animals aren't hitting the stalls, aren't hurting themselves, won't have visible injuries, you know, the, the cow fits the stall. Um, so there are no strict dimension requirements uh, for stalls. So, so that's kind of where there are some um, understandings around the differences in cow size. In terms of all four-legged Ovids, uh, beef, for example, it, it becomes a little bit tricky. So how we manage this in ProAction, keeping in mind that ProAction's umbrella only covers uh, facilities that have milk licenses, right? So, so we can't go onto an auction site or a beef farm and mandate, even if they have dairy animals, that they meet ProAction requirements. They have to have a milk license. Um, if a farm with a milk license has a pen of cows that are considered beef animals, um, whether they're raising up like beef on dairy crosses or what have you, if they're housed separately in a separate pen, they would not be included in the, the, the dairy code or the production program. If they're mixed in with dairy animals, for example, uh, young uh, beef on dairy calves are housed the same way as dairy calves and kind of in the same row of hutches or in the, the same types of pens, they would be covered. So that's how we kind of separate. There is a beef code and there is a veal code. And so the, the animals that are housed separately would be covered under those codes, which if you have beef animals, I strongly suggest you go and make yourself aware of those requirements to make sure that, uh, that you're covered. Well, thanks for that. I, I'm always curious a little bit when you've got kind of a mixture what the what the answer is, and I think that really helped with that. Um, that said, if we work towards all of these things and ultimately are not able to meet the new requirements, not specifically regarding beef or calves or whatever, but any requirement of the new code, what will happen? What is the enforcement like or what are the consequences for not complying with this? Yeah. Uh, so another toughie. Uh, so the co-committee has really made a significant effort and push to allow for enough time for farmers to um, adopt recommendations and requirements, particularly those around 
kind of high impact on structural changes or, or financial changes, financial commitments, et cetera, um, and have also made an effort to make it as non-prescriptive as possible. So farmers can be creative in how they find solutions to meet the requirements. Um, so we're hoping that very few farms would fall into this category. Uh, that being said, if they do, um, and the requirement is then incorporated at that time frame into proaction, then proaction consequences would apply. And um, whether it's a, a major minor or demerits and the follow-ups, those are currently being discussed by the various proaction committees on how to incorporate those changes into requirements for proaction. But there would be consequences and follow-up uh, through your province. Um, before they're incorporated into proaction and after their live date, that's when you could be dealing with uh, provincial like animal welfare inspectors um, or, or veterinary inspectors that would expect you to meet the standard and would be very careful in the follow-up of that. Now, that being said, if it's, you know, abuse or neglect cases, those can be judicial cases. Um, you, you can be taken to court. Um, those are usually very extreme cases, uh, but there's always the risk that that, that could happen. And um, the code will be used as a way to determine whether the standard was being met or not. So that's where those consequences would fall. Well, Dr. Sarah gave you such hard questions. I can come in with more of a softball. Although I, I, I had not thought of, like, here's now beef animals on a lot of dairy farms now. So, um, but anyway, no, no, the last question, then we'll let you get on with your day, Ken. But, um, you know, one of the things that point that sticks out to me in this new code is actually section one. Um, which is a new section on training and responsibilities. Um, given that so many of our farms continue to grow in size, continuing to grow in team members, continue to um, you know expand that way to to kind of solidify this training and responsibility um, section, certainly makes sense to me. Um, but but maybe kind of describe some of the things that you know as we do have people here working on the farms what should I make sure they know now, Clem? Hmm. Well, uh, that is a good question. Uh, we, we, we do see kind of the, the area of training and supervision and management as a bit of a gap in our program and production. Like we don't cover it in a ton of detail and it is a very high risk piece because if you're not training people, right, we've seen this in animal welfare, abuse, neglect cases, um, things kind of can go awry and expectations are not understood. Uh, and so um, the co-committee created a whole new chapter based on this, which was great to see. And um, the FC and the provincial organizations are looking carefully at how to incorporate a little bit more uh, guidance on this in proaction, but also develop more tools to help farmers with this piece as well. Um, I think some key pieces to remember around training, especially um, in the last few years, we've seen um, more foreign labor come onto dairy farms. And that, that breeds a whole other layer of complexity around language barrier. And so it has to be um, uh, clearly um, managed in order to make sure everybody understands everything the same way. So for ProAction, for example, uh, we require that all of the SOPs are available in whatever language is best for the workers doing those procedures or you could use videos or you could use i've seen um, i've gone to some u.s dairies where they have a lot of foreign workers they're very large facilities and they use pictograms so pictures to illustrate what those practices are that apply to any language 
um, because we're seeing more than just Spanish. We're seeing um, a lot of um, Filipinos and Brazilians, Portuguese, lots of different languages coming on the farm. Um, so those would cover you, your bases and you wouldn't have to redo and retranslate SOPs in multiple different languages. Uh, but the key is really making sure that the person doing the procedure understands the expectation on that farm and what the uh, standard operating procedures practices and requirements are. So step one of that. And then just because you've trained them once doesn't necessarily mean that people don't drift in their practices. So following up, making sure that the practices remain the practices you train them on initially is very important. We do that a lot with our cattle assessors and our validators. We train them, but we also do regular follow-up. The assessors get quizzed every six months on how to score cows. That's something that any employer should be working on with their employees. And lastly, monitor yourself. Make sure that you have eyes on, on you as well, because you, as if you're a property owner or manager, um, you can also drift. So, so make sure you have some check-ins from, from outside sources, whether that be, your, for example, your vet or someone else in the family that doesn't work on the farm regularly, that, that makes sure that keeps you accountable for your practices and how you should be doing things, because it's very easy to get complacent. Um, and, and that's where uh, things can kind of go downhill. So those are the pieces that I would sensitize everyone to around um, training and, and management. And we'll, we'll be adding kind of a little bit more detail and content to that, both in terms of supportive tools, but also potentially in requirements in coming years. I think those are some really great pointers. I mean, we're always talking about continuous improvement in uh, the ProAction program. And I think that just staying on top of it, keeping up with what's happening and holding yourself accountable, like you say, is really so important. I love that we're able to connect with you for this conversation, Clem. I think it's a great way to take something that's kind of intimidating, like the code, and just talk about it. I learned something new. Um, and I think there's always something to learn when we're talking about this. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Clem. Snash. Uh, thanks for being at the Canadian Podcow. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks very much, Clem. Uh, just a reminder that the new Code of Practice is available. You can go to the website nfacc.ca. Um, you click on um, Code of Practices, Dairy Cattle, and there it is. So uh, thanks, Clem. And that's it for this episode of the Canadian Podcast. Sarah, what's some of your reaction to what Clem had to talk about? Or, you know, I, I don't know if you've gone through it word for word, per page for page of the new code, but like, are you nervous? Do you feel ready? How, how does it apply to you folks out in BC? Well, I have to admit, I need to go and read through the final um, because we spent a lot of time here talking about the draft and I spent a lot of time contributing to the consultations on that. Um, and then it sounds like there there was some movement and uh, some things did change from draft to what's final. Um, so I need to work through those and get up to speed on them. But I love that we're conversing about it. I mean, it's way easier to learn things with friends and uh, talking about it and just getting a sense of how other producers are handling um, some of the changes, I think, is a great way to manage this as we work through it together. And uh, no, I'm not that crazy intimidated by the requirements. I think they're super important to what we do in the industry, um, to what consumers are expecting on farm. And uh, I'm glad it sounds like the consultations uh, were reflective of the process that people were involved and had their say and got into it. And uh, as producers, it's our responsibility, I believe, to, to carry this work forward and to have it show up on our farms in a really positive way.
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, going back to those draft ones that we had talked about here that, you know, we'd done, I'd sent my consultation kind of ideas through as well, because, you know, at that, at that point, there were a few things that, um, you know, maybe, maybe didn't even necessarily apply to us as a farm, but I think, you know, gosh, that's getting carried away is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, you just kind of think, you know, is that really necessary to go that far? So to be able to one hear that so many of the, um, you know, producers in the country did submit some ideas to that um, and, and that the committee did really take them to heart, I think was, was, was great news. And, you know, as I kind of look at that, you know, there isn't, there isn't the same red flags that I thought there were in draft one. So, um, you know, I, I'm with you. I've seen, I've seen a lot of the headlines through a few, through a few different presentations. So once maybe, maybe it'll be like my cottage reading, I'll bring up the code of practice as I sit on a dock with a beverage. That sounds like a a good holiday activity. Yeah, just tell Jess that's what you're packing for. <laughs> just I've got my cooler and the coat of practice. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm jealous, man. Jealous. Oh, funny. Well, I, I do want to take this time, uh, you know, to thank everybody for tuning in today. Certainly don't hesitate to send us questions, comments, suggestions, anything like that um, via our Facebook page or our Twitter account. And please don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. Great way to learn about the code of practice, among other awesome topics. All our episodes are available on canadianpodcow.ca. A big thanks to our guest, Clemence Nash. Thanks to our director, Bruce Sargent, our producer, Carl Belanger, and our sponsor, Dairy Farmers of Canada. See you soon for another episode of the Canadian Podcast.